On Halloween night in 1828, the streets of Edinburgh, Scotland, were nearly empty. Wind rustled through the leafless trees, and a crescent moon shone in the dark sky. Against this eerie backdrop, two men, William Burke and William Hare, welcomed an old woman named Marjorie Dougherty into their boarding house. But Burke and Hare weren't simply bringing Marjorie in as a guest. They had more sinister intentions. For a few hours, the pair put on a friendly facade. They sang songs and offered their tenant whiskey. Every time Marjorie's glass was empty, they refilled it. Then, when she couldn't take any more liquor, they opened her mouth and forced the alcohol down her throat. Before long, her eyes drooped. She was barely conscious. The men knew it was now or never, so they began their charade. They shoved each other, shouted, and raised their fists to fight. Even though she was drunk, Marjorie stood up and tried to stop their brawl. The men immediately knocked her to the floor. One climbed on her chest and pinned down her arms and legs. Before she could scream, the other man's hands were around her throat, strangling her. In moments, the old woman was dead. Eight years later, 17 tiny coffins were uncovered on the outskirts of Edinburgh, one of which might have been a memorial to Marjorie Dougherty. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the miniature coffins of Arthur's Seat. In 1836, students discovered 17 tiny caskets in a cave outside of Edinburgh, Scotland. The mystery has baffled Scottish authorities for almost 200 years. Last time, we followed various archaeologists as they examined the coffins and the strange dolls interred inside. Today, we'll explore whether the caskets could be linked to witches, lost sailors, or executed revolutionaries. They might even be connected to two Scottish serial killers who tallied up more victims than Jack the Ripper. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Just outside of Edinburgh, Scotland, a set of hills called Hollywood Park juts far into the sky. The highest point is a rocky peak known as Arthur's Seat. It's associated with countless Scottish myths and legends, including tales of a fire-breathing dragon, the Fountain of Youth, and the legendary castle known as Camelot. But in 1836, five young schoolboys discovered a real mystery on Arthur's Seat— while hunting for rabbits, they found a cave that contained 17 miniature coffins. Each was crafted from a single piece of wood and adorned with tin. They looked to have been carved by a novice woodworker using a curved knife. All 17 tombs contained their own tiny wooden doll, which wore funeral garments, as if to represent a corpse. But they didn't look dead. All of their eyes were wide open. The items bewildered Scottish officials. Archaeologists couldn't determine where they came from or what they meant. Soon, local newspapers picked up the story and circulated their own ideas. One of the first articles claimed the caskets had been buried by the widows of lost sailors. When their husbands died at sea, these grieving women might have conducted a miniature funeral service in their honor. However, newspapers didn't connect the coffins to a specific shipwreck. It was more speculation than explanation, so most researchers didn't think the hypothesis was legitimate. Plus, no contemporary archaeologist could find records of an early 19th century shipwreck that involved exactly 17 fatalities. But later on, they uncovered two such incidents. In 1833, an Irish ship known as the Aran Steamer crashed off the coast of Ireland. Of the 25 men aboard, 17 drowned. One year later, in 1834, a ship left port at Boston, Massachusetts. The next day, a gust of wind wrecked the vessel on Seal Island just off the United States coast. Again, 17 people were killed. These tragedies met a few important criteria. Both shipwrecks occurred before 1836, when the caskets were discovered. Additionally, each involved the deaths of 17 people, so it's possible that either event inspired someone to craft the miniature coffins. Still, there are some holes in this explanation. The ships departed from Ireland and the United States, respectively. Neither set sail from Scotland, and no sources mentioned the death of any Scottish passengers. Additionally, there's no record of miniature coffins ever being used to memorialize sailors. In the 1800s, people mourned those lost at sea by erecting headstones over empty graves. Just like in conventional burials, they engraved the stone with the deceased person's name and the years they'd lived. When numerous people perished in a shipwreck, the sailors' hometown built a monument to the dead. The statue frequently included the names of each lost sailor. 
In contrast, the coffins found at Arthur's seat were uniform and nearly indistinguishable from one another. No names or identifying markings were carved into the wood. So aside from the conjecture in Scottish newspapers, it's pretty safe to say this explanation was a bust. But it certainly wasn't the only idea people had. In the weeks following the coffin's discovery, the press promoted a different explanation. They wondered whether the caskets and dolls were the handiwork of witches. For much of recorded history, people in the British Isles believed witches were a serious threat. In 1563, the Scottish government passed a law known as the Witchcraft Act. The legislation made the craft a capital offense, punishable by death. In total, around 2,500 Scottish people, mostly women, were tortured and killed on suspicion of witchcraft. The majority of those executed were burned at the stake. In 1736, after 200 years of brutal persecution, the law was finally repealed. The executions stopped, but the witch panic persisted. Around the time of the killings, William Shakespeare wrote the Scottish play Macbeth, which featured three witches known as the Weird Sisters. The characters became so iconic that many Scottish people believed they were real. Following the discovery of the coffins, one prominent Scottish newspaper immediately blamed the Weird Sisters. They claimed Shakespeare's witches lurked outside of Edinburgh, haunting Arthur's seat with their sorcery. According to the article, the enchantresses wielded voodoo magic, which linked the dolls to innocent people. By entombing the figures, they were murdering 17 innocent Scots. Perhaps it was their way of exacting revenge for the slaughter of their sisters under the Witchcraft Act. But despite the newspaper's claims, officials never discovered any physical evidence of witchcraft. Typically, witches were believed to harm people by damaging the voodoo dolls that represented them. But the figures found on Arthur's seat hadn't been harmed. On the contrary, someone had laid them in the tomb with great care, as if the figures represented something or someone precious. So the witch explanation seemed like another dead end. Other potential hypotheses circulated, but none really held weight. Over a century passed without any new leads. Then, in 1994, two researchers named Samuel Menefee and Alan Simpson conducted their own analysis of the coffins. They wanted a solid explanation, and according to them, the truth had to meet three criteria. First, the coffins had to be connected to an event that had occurred in or around Edinburgh. Second, they must have been created by someone who wasn't an expert in woodworking. Third, and most importantly, there must have been a reason why there were exactly 17 coffins. In 2017, a competing historian and author found an explanation that he believed met all three criteria. A war the British government wanted to erase from the history books. Coming up, we dive into the rebellion that shook Scotland. Since the beginning of time, people have wanted to believe in an afterlife. Hi listeners, I'm Shelby Scott, 
In Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast, I take a closer look at the mortal lives of spiritualists who claim to communicate with the dead and the scientists who tried to debunk them. This eight-episode series looks at paranormal events proven to be hoaxes and those which have mystified even the world's greatest skeptics. Mixing history, mystery, and social psychology, Mediums asks how these self-proclaimed psychics pulled off the illusion of interacting with the dead, even under a microscope of criticism. Were they all simply peddling parlor tricks, or was there something truly paranormal going on? Break out your Ouija board, dust off your crystal ball, or light some candles, because Parcast is ready to reveal what's really known about the unknown. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Mediums. Summon new episodes every Wednesday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1836, a group of Edinburgh schoolboys discovered 17 miniature coffins in a cave on Arthur's seat. Explanations for the artifact's origins abounded. Some believed sailors' wives had carved and buried the caskets to memorialize their late husbands. Others suspected witches had created the wooden figures to use as voodoo dolls. Neither theory quite stuck, and the caskets remained a mystery. For years, officials tried to explain the origin of the caskets, but few plausible possibilities emerged. Until 2017. Like many people, researcher Jeff Nisbet found the explanations for the caskets unsatisfying. He investigated further, and his analysis led him to a conclusion no one else had ever considered. Perhaps the coffins were linked to a fight the British government wanted to forget. The Radical War of 1820. In the late 1700s, revolutions broke out around the world. Americans lashed out at their British oppressors. The French working class fought back against royalty and aristocracy. Both hoped to replace cruel, arcane systems with forms of democracy. Against this backdrop in the early 1800s, an economic recession hit Scotland. Wages plummeted and working conditions grew increasingly unsafe. Fabric weavers were hit particularly hard. In the 1810s, textile mills were a cheap way to make fabric. As mills grew more popular, weavers' work was devalued. Their wages were cut in half. But the spirit of revolution was in the air. Scottish workers were inspired to fight for their rights. In 1813, weavers unionized and went on strike. For over two months, 40,000 people refused to work. They demanded reform. But the government wasn't interested in negotiating. They responded with force and intimidation. They arrested union leaders and broke the strike. The weavers returned to work, but their anger bubbled just under the surface until it broke through. In 1819, 60,000 workers congregated in Manchester, England. The military attempted to disperse the crowd when the protesters refused to move, the troops aimed and fired. Eleven workers died, and 400 more were wounded. The massacre sparked an outcry across Scotland. 
As the protesters saw it, the government wasn't just denying wages anymore. They were committing murder. For the movement's leaders, reform was no longer enough. A few workers formed a group known as the Committee for Organizing a Provisional Government, which began strategizing a Scottish revolution. Unsurprisingly, the government wasn't on board. They called these rebelling workers radicals. In 1820, the radicals hosted secret meetings around Scotland to rouse interest and rally troops. But one of their gatherings was infiltrated. On March 21, 1820, a man named John King joined a committee assembly in Glasgow. King worked as a weaver, but he also served the government. While the meeting was still in progress, King excused himself. Moments later, police raided the tavern. They arrested and imprisoned everyone inside. The committee members realized that King had set them up, but they'd been detained, so they couldn't warn their compatriots. On King's orders, another spy named Turner wrote a proclamation demanding a revolt in Glasgow. Turner falsely signed it on behalf of the Committee for Organizing a Provisional Government, the same group whose members were incarcerated. And on the morning of April 1st, 1820, workers read Turner's paper. Inspired by the faux proclamation, they refused to go into work. Hundreds of people, mostly weavers, armed themselves. Turner rallied a regiment of 60 radicals who he commanded to march to Falkirk a town between Glasgow and Edinburgh. He promised they'd find weapons, ammunition, and reinforcements in the city. But in Falkirk, the radicals only found another spy, John King. He told the small garrison they'd find reinforcements at a grassland known as Bonnie Muir. Desperate and out of options, the radicals marched there. At Bonnie Muir, the rebels weren't met by their allies, but by British troops. They ordered the radicals to surrender. The workers refused. Grossly outnumbered, the tiny battalion fired upon the soldiers. Shots flew back and forth. Rebels fell to the soldiers' gunfire. Within minutes, the workers had no choice but to surrender. The soldiers arrested the survivors. Just like that, the Battle of Bonnemuir was over. A few months later, in September 1820, three radical leaders were brought to the gallows. They were publicly hanged and later dismembered. Nineteen other rebel prisoners were sentenced to exile in Australia. The message was clear. Nobody should dare to revolt against the British government. The radical war had come to an abrupt end, but the weavers' struggles continued. No longer needed by an industrialized Scotland, Many fell into unemployment. In 1822, the government came up with a plan to keep them working. They hired hundreds of out-of-work weavers to build a road around Arthur's seat. The weavers began construction on what's known today as Radical Road. They spent hours each day carving a path up the mountain. And according to researcher Jeff Nisbet, one laborer may have slipped away from the rest of the workforce. They could have hiked up Arthur's seat alone, carrying a sack that contained 17 tiny coffins, a way to remember those they'd lost and those who still resisted. 
Then they could have hidden the caskets in a cave on the cliffside, where schoolboys would discover them over a decade later. According to Nisbet, the radical war theory provides the most logical explanation for the coffin's creation. All three of the men executed, as well as most of the people exiled, were weavers. They had the expertise needed to craft the cotton and silk found inside the coffins. As for the tin decorating the coffins and the fact that they'd been carved with a curved knife, perhaps the weavers had help from the Scottish travelers. Scottish travelers were a diverse group of people who lived a nomadic lifestyle. Due to their near-constant movement, travelers had unique skills like wood and metalworking. They often used a tool called a peg knife. It sported a curved blade, much like the one used to carve the coffins. They also specialized in the repair of pots, pans, and shoes, meaning they had access to the tin found on the casket's exterior. But the traveler's connection to the items might reach even further. Nisbet claimed the group may have been responsible for coming up with the very idea of the coffins. In ancient Egyptian culture, when a loved one died, their family buried them with a small wooden figure called an ushabti. Loved ones carefully crafted the ushabti out of clay or wood and gave them detailed features meant to resemble symbolic servants. Egyptians believed the ushabti protected the dead in the afterlife. And for hundreds of years, Scottish travelers were erroneously referred to as Egyptians. Although recent genetic testing suggests they were of Indian ancestry, Nisbet believed the travelers could have migrated through Egypt on their way to Scotland. Perhaps they learned about the Ushabti and brought the practice to Edinburgh. Once in Scotland, travelers were often subjected to discrimination, which means they could have formed a bond with the similarly oppressed weavers. Upon hearing of the workers' plight, the nomadic people might have offered the Ushabti to help them deal with their grief. Perhaps the two groups worked together to fashion the coffins, the figures, and their clothes. Upon the coffin's discovery, the government and newspapers might have blamed sailors' wives and witches to draw attention away from the radical war. They hoped to hide the injustices they'd committed against Scottish workers, and it's possible that the cover-up didn't end there. Since the 1830s, British history books have contained fewer and fewer mentions of the uprising. Some believe authorities are still trying to smother the story nearly two centuries later because talk of the uprising could spark a debate over Scottish independence. But despite Nisbet's claims, there's no physical evidence linking the coffins to the radical war. There's no written accounts of the casket's creation proof that the doll's fabric was sewn by weavers, or stories of radicals and Scottish travelers even crossing paths. But the real nail in the coffin is the fact that the boys discovered 17 caskets. Following the uprising, three rebel leaders were hanged and 19 were sent abroad. If the caskets were connected to the radicals, there probably would have been 22 of them. But there might be one possibility that explains why there are exactly 17 coffins. In this case, the figures don't depict the casualties of war. They represent victims of murder. 
Coming up, the link between the coffins and the most notorious killers in Scottish history. Now back to the story. Since 1836, people have speculated on the origins of the miniature coffins found at Arthur's Seat. Some believed the caskets were linked to witches or lost sailors. More recently, a researcher claimed they were connected to Scotland's Radical War of 1820, which saw three rebels executed and 19 exiled. But the most sensational idea came from Samuel Menefee and Alan Simpson, who examined the coffins in the late 20th century. According to them, the best explanation for the artifacts was particularly grisly. The items represented the victims of two infamous Scottish murderers. The culprits killed for profit to secure bodies that they'd then sell to physicians. Doctors and medical students were only legally allowed to dissect cadavers of people who'd received the death sentence. However, in 1823, a British law known as the Judgment of Death Act decreased the number of crimes punishable by execution. With fewer people sent to the gallows, medical schools had fewer bodies available for analysis. So they grew desperate. They offered large sums of money to those who could provide freshly dead corpses. People in need of cash turned to grave robbing. Upon discovering a new grave, they exhumed the body and delivered it to the medical school. Most doctors didn't ask questions. The corpse benefited their work, so they simply paid whoever delivered the cadaver and moved on. Fearing grave robbers, family members began standing watch over their loved ones' graves. Some cemeteries even erected watchtowers to monitor the burial grounds at night. This made it nearly impossible for someone to access a fresh corpse. And as the influx of cadavers dwindled, demand soared. Medical school officials offered larger and larger sums for fresh bodies. Those who still wished to sell corpses for money had to get creative. Against this backdrop, in 1827, 35-year-old William Burke moved onto the same Edinburgh street as William Hare, who was likely in his 20s. Burke worked as a cobbler, and Hare ran a boarding house. The two became fast friends. But later that year, their relationship turned into something far more sinister. One November night, Burke and Hare were spending time together when they heard a thump upstairs. Hare rushed to the second floor and discovered one of his tenants dead on the carpet. Despite the gloom of the situation, all Hare could think about was the tenant's debt. The deceased owed him four pounds. That's about 600 U.S. dollars today. With money in mind, Burke and Hare hatched a scheme. On the day of the tenant's funeral, they loaded his coffin with heavy tanning bark. That way, the pallbearers wouldn't be able to tell the body was missing. Then they put the remains in a sack and carried them to the local medical school. The duo sold the corpse to a man named Dr. Knox, a well-known lecturer at the college. He paid them a little over seven pounds, or 1,000 U.S. dollars today. Burke and Hare split the cash. They weren't just friends anymore. They were business partners, and there was no going back. In the men's eyes, it was just too easy to make money selling cadavers. 
Dr. Knox hadn't asked questions, and nobody else suspected any wrongdoing. Burke and Hare wanted more riches, but they didn't want to wait for someone else to die. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. A few months later, in early 1828, one of Hare's tenants came down with an infection. He and Burke knew they could kill the man and blame his death on the illness. In the middle of the night, the duo snuck into his room. Burke covered the man's face with a pillow. Hare sat on his chest and pinned down his arms. In moments, the sick man died. That same night, they sold his corpse to Dr. Knox for 10 pounds. Without any other sick tenants, Burke and Hare realized they'd have to change their tactics. Each day, one of the men patrolled the streets in search of a target. When he found a suitable victim, he invited the person back to the boarding house. The pair poured their unsuspecting target whiskey until they were senselessly drunk. Then, the duo suffocated their guest. By smothering their victims, the killers avoided leaving marks on the corpse. When they exchanged the cadaver with Dr. Knox, there was no indication that the person had perished from unnatural causes. For a year, Burke and Hare conducted their nefarious business. They remained cautious and meticulous. No one suspected they were killers until the murder of Marjorie Doherty. On Halloween night, 1828, the duo welcomed Marjorie to the boarding house. They needed to give the old woman a room, but the only available space had been rented by a couple, the Greys. Burke asked the pair if they'd be willing to sleep at his home so Marjorie could stay at Hare's boarding house. Eager to do him a favor, the Greys agreed. That night, Burke and Hare murdered Marjorie Doherty. After the homicide, they stripped off her clothes, got rid of her belongings, and covered her body in straw. They couldn't transport it to Dr. Knox until the next night, so they hid the corpse in the corner of the bedroom. But the morning after the murder, the Greys returned to Hare's boarding house. As soon as she walked in, Mrs. Gray asked where Marjorie had gone. Burke and Hare claimed the old woman had insulted them, so they threw her out. Mrs. Gray didn't think Marjorie seemed like that kind of person, but she reluctantly accepted the excuse. Later that morning, as the rest of the house ate breakfast, Mrs. Gray rummaged around the rooms looking for her child's lost stocking. Her search brought her to the bed of straw. Before she could go through it, Burke leapt from his seat. He screamed at Mrs. Gray to move away from the straw. She backed up, but her eyes stayed locked on the corner. She knew the men were hiding something. That afternoon, the boarding house was empty. Mrs. Gray and her husband snuck into the bedroom. They stood over the bed of straw, gathering the courage to reach inside. Mrs. Gray leaned down, slid her hand into the pile, and screamed. She felt something cold and stiff, something dead. Her husband pushed the straw aside. The couple gazed at the old woman's corpse. Their hearts pounded. They were lodging in the home of two murderers. The Greys ran to the police station to report what they'd seen. That night, Burke and Hare were arrested for the murder of Marjorie Doherty. 
But as the police investigated, they had trouble locating evidence for the other killings. So they struck a deal with Hare. They offered him full immunity in exchange for testimony against his partner, Burke. Hare agreed. Two months later, in January 1829, William Burke was hanged in front of a crowd of 25,000 people. In a punishment befitting the crime, his corpse was donated to the medical school for dissection. William Hare, on the other hand, was set free. Between 1827 and 1828, Burke and Hare had sold 17 bodies to Dr. Knox. In 1836, just eight years after the final murder, 17 coffins were discovered on Arthur's seat, which stood mere miles from Hare's boarding house. Some people, including researchers Menifee and Simpson, believed that the items were linked to Burke and Hare's victims. Because their corpses had been sold to Dr. Knox for dissection, they'd never received a proper funeral. It's possible someone carved the caskets and hid them at Arthur's seat in an honorific burial. Or maybe the coffins weren't meant to be a memorial. Maybe they were a form of atonement. In their research, Menifee and Simpson concluded that the creator of the coffins likely worked as a shoemaker, the same profession as William Burke. Perhaps facing death, Burke was filled with remorse. Maybe he carved the 17 miniature coffins and wooden dolls as a sort of apology. Then, before his execution, he gave the caskets to a friend and asked that they be buried somewhere special. This person may have hidden Burke's creations on Arthur's seat, meaning the coffins were crafted by the hands of a murderer. But some experts don't buy into the Burke and Hare hypothesis. Twelve of the duo's victims were women, but all of the figures were dressed in traditionally male clothing. At first, this seemed like a minor point, but researcher Jeff Nisbet believed the issue disqualified this explanation. If the creators intended to memorialize the victims, it would be much simpler to tailor 12 dresses as opposed to 12 shirts and pants. Maybe Nisbet was right. Perhaps the coffins really were a memorial to the Radical War of 1820. But when he published this theory, the National Museum of Scotland shrugged it off. They admitted it was an interesting idea, but a museum curator said it was outside the coffins' established canon. Which means we're no closer to determining just what the caskets were meant to represent. We can only visit them and make our best guesses. Today, the miniature coffins can be found in the National Museum of Scotland. Each figure still lies in its original wrappings, and all of their eyes remain open, as if searching for the person who buried them. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the miniature coffins of Arthur's seat, amongst the many sources we used, we found the British newspaper archive and researcher Jeff Nisbet very helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer.
Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, I'm Shelby Scott, host of Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast. You can join me Wednesdays as I dive into the world of spiritualism and the women that defined it. We'll explore everything from obvious con artists to 150-year-old mysteries. It'll be a fascinating journey, so be sure to follow my new podcast, Mediums, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.